0: Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Um, so over this past summer, as you know, if you've, you've been here in and, in and out, we've been in various guest speakers with Darren's uh, sabbatical. Uh, and he kind of asked me to kind of hold together the ends of the uh, the, the conversation uh, by um, pulling back together some of our conversations about disciplines that we had a few weeks ago. Um, those practices, those um, uh, exercises that we do that creates space so that God can do what only he can do. It's important that we recognize that spiritual disciplines are not the way you become like Christ. Spiritual disciplines are the things that you do so that God can make you like Christ, so that the Holy Spirit, they are ways of creating space so that the Holy Spirit can accomplish his purposes in you. We don't have it within us to become the kinds of people we want to become. So it's not like here are 10 easy steps towards Christ-likeness or towards personal authenticity or towards becoming more fully yourself, which by the way, I believe are all three the same thing. right? So spiritual disciplines are not um, um, uh, what spiritual people do. They are what people who want to be spiritual do. Does, does that make sense? So we talked, uh, laid out some foundations. We talked about prayer. We talked about word. We talked about various uh, other kinds of disciplines, practices that open the door so that the Holy Spirit can, can come in. Um, we talk about some of the disciplines of community, which is what I'm going to end up with this week and next week. Um, and particularly next week, I want to talk about disciplines of community, specifically focusing on confession and submission, so you might not want to be here next week for that. Uh, because the only way that we can be together in community is to own our own story and to be available to each other in the, tr- in the truth of that. And particularly in a culture of, of terrified independence, uh, to be able to say your way, not my way. I don't need to have my own way in this. So submission isn't just about the nature of how marriage works. It's about the nature of how friendship works. Uh, two, traveling the same road have to be agreed and inevitably one of them will have to say, oh, oh okay, I can, I can do it your way for this season. Um, that's not weakness. That's strength. You can't submit out of weakness. So that's next week. Uh, We'll talk about that. But today I want to talk about two disciplines, and perhaps we should have talked about these two practices. We should have talked about these way back at the beginning because they are really fundamental to the spiritual life, and that that is the disciplines of solitude and silence, the disciplines of being alone for the purpose of being present to God and being quiet for the purpose of listening to God. They are also disciplines of community. You can't be trusted in community if you haven't learned how to be alone. Uh, Otherwise, community will become for you a a parasitic kind of relationship. You will be deriving your value, your worth, your significance from those with whom you are friends. The, The size of your Rolodex, if you will, back using the throwback language of the old, you know. Um, The number of friends you have on Facebook will let you know how real you are. No, actually not. Um, uh, And so, so, so solitude is the discipline of chosen aloneness for the purpose of engaging in the presence of God. Silence is the practice or the discipline of three things. Having stilled the external noise, Learning to be quiet inside so that I could hear the silence, which is God's favorite voice. Those two, inner and uh, outer and inner noise. And then the discipline of silence also enables us to not have to speak, even when we have something to say. This is important, especially in the silly season of our political realities. Where dialogue is talking and then waiting to talk. Not listening. Talking and waiting to talk. So these two disciplines um, are are, are lived for us by Jesus. Uh, They are um, 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 ways of pushing back against the Uh, conforming structures both of the secular world and the spiritual world or the Christian world or the church world. You can be just as damaged by conforming to the secular world um, as you are by conforming to the spiritual world. There's a spirituality of performance that's about conforming that is damaging to your soul just like there is a a practice and way of life of conforming to the demands of the world. Solitude trains us in enabling us to be um, comfortable uh, not being understood, comfortable in not being taken seriously, comfortable in not being attended to. How does that feel? Is that something you want to learn how to do? It's hard, isn't it? Because we we. How many of you spend a lot of your time explaining yourself to other people so that they understand? (laughs) Right? Because I believe if you disagree with me, it's simply because you're not as well informed as I am. So I'm happy to fill you in on the content that I have that you don't have. Because I'm pretty much convinced that if you will listen to me, if you listen to me, you will soon have the kind of degree of wisdom that I have, and of course then you will agree that my take on life is exactly, exactly the right one. I mean, how silly is that? If two of us agree on everything, one of us isn't necessary. Silence trains us in being misunderstood and being okay with that. If I count on you to know who I am, then that's putting way too much freight in your hands. So so this is the the practice that we want to learn into. To be able to be alone without being lonely. By the way, if you can't be alone without being lonely, being with people won't fix your lonely. Because lonely isn't about other people. It's an inner condition of fragmentation. Uh, Solitude trains us in becoming present to ourselves in God so that we can actually show up in real relationships with other people. I think you probably have found how hard it is to be where you actually are. Right? Because you don't live in your body, you live around it. You've had this conversation perhaps with others and realized that while their body is there and their eyes are more or less focused in your general direction, the person to whom you wish to speak is no longer available at the present moment. Have you had that experience? either they're looking over your shoulder to find somebody more interesting to talk to or they're rehearsing a conversation they had with somebody who was more interesting than you or something of that kind, right? So being present, is a huge, difficult discipline, being where we are. Uh, And the more familiar you are with someone, which is not the same thing as intimate, the more familiar you are with someone, the more difficult it is to be really actually present with them, because you start to communicate in shorthand. But if there is a full, rich, real presence, then even the silence is rich with meaning. So this is what we want to talk about for the next few minutes uh, this morning. Uh, We're going to um, look at a a framing text that I have found particularly um, challenging and troubling. It's one that we've used or worked through in some levels uh, with, with some of you before, but it's from 1 uh, Kings chapter 19, the Old Testament. Uh, we'll go back uh, to, to this season. Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done. Now, what Elijah had done, just to frame this quickly, is that he had had a throwdown with the prophets of Baal. And you may remember the story, it's on Mount uh, Car- Carmel, uh, where, where, where Elijah, after three and a half years, is frustrated with these people for not uh, pursuing God uh, uh, who has has, uh, uh, brought about a drought in answer to Elijah's prayers so that his people would seek him. And instead of seeking him, they continue to pursue after the generic God Baal, or Baal as we we call him, uh, who ostensibly has authority over wind, waves, weather. And uh, so, so Elijah finally is frustrated with this and finally has this throwdown moment. Bring your best. Bring, bring as many of your best as you can. We're, we're going to settle this. We're going we're to build an altar. We're going to put a sacrifice in the altar. And whoever answers that with fire, consuming the altar, let that guy be God. Because anybody who can do that probably is actually God. So you know the story. 450 prophets of Baal all day long, nothing. Not, not even a spark. Nothing. And they go through their perambulations to try and call down. Elijah, on the other hand, is taunting them. He's teasing them. He's suggesting that maybe their God's gone out to the bathroom. He'll be back in a few minutes. It's just this whole just in-your-face trash talk that prophets do with one another when they're not playing basketball. So, so there's that going on, and then about 3, three, 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 three thirty in the afternoon, Elijah's starting to look at his watch. I got a dinner appointment. So, let, can we, can we, can we just suggest that? Uh, let me give this a shot. And he builds a thing, pours water. Remember, water in a land of drought. Pours gold over these sacrifices and then stands back and warns everybody else to stand back. And instantly, of course, fire falls, consumes the sacrifice, consumes the altar of stone incinerated, and the water. And then 450 of the prophets of Baal, finally recognizing that they are lost, are executed. These, however, are the pet prophets of Queen Jezebel, And when Ahab, the king, tells Jezebel what Elijah has done, how he's killed all the prophets, uh, Jezebel sends uh, a text to uh, Elijah (laughs) and says, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like one of them. 450 prophets of Baal. Elijah is cool as a cucumber. One text from this angry woman, look what happens. Elijah was afraid (laughs) and ran for his life. Now why, by the way? Any of you who have been in ministry know exactly when that text arrived. It is when he is on the downside of the adrenaline surge of the high-intensity ministry day that he's been engaged in. He she gets him as the body is moving into the recovery depression that is God's gift of high adrenaline ministry involvement. With me? So 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 as as he's coming off the high of that um, celebration of God's goodness, the end of the day he has begun to make it rain again. Right. And that text arrives as he's on his way down into the gift that is depression that will help him recover. Uh, And and she gets him just at that cycle. Right. So that tanks him. Uh, And he runs away uh, and finally ends up in Beersheba in Judah leaving his servant there. Remember, he's in Carmel, the far north of the country. He runs about 220 miles, leaves his servant there, and then goes another 30 miles until he's just over the border into the wilderness. He comes to a broom bush, sits down under it, prays that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my dead ancestors. But he has no energy to even commit suicide. He falls asleep under a bush. Then an angel touches him and says to him, get up and eat. Best remedy for adrenaline drain induced depression is good sleep and simple food. So the angel knowing this, angels know stuff, says to him, get up and eat. And there, by his head, is a still steaming loaf of freshly baked bread and a jar of water. Miraculous provision in the middle of the desert. But he says nothing. He gets up, he eats, and he drinks, and then he goes back to sleep again. With me? Look at what happens next. A little while later, the angel of the Lord came back to him a second time, And touched him and said, get up and eat. For the journey you are on is too great for you. When did his running become a journey? In this moment. It becomes a pilgrimage. He has been running to the end and now discovers he's running towards a new beginning. So. He eats and he drinks and strengthened by that food, he travels 40 days and 40 nights until he reaches Horeb, which we now call Sinai, which is the mountain of God. This is the mountain on which Israel began their journey, that they met God, that they received the commandments, that Moses went face to face, toe to toe with God as his friend. And Elijah finds himself in that deja vu moment, that deja vu place that place of pilgrimage, and he there goes into a cave. The Hebrew says a cleft in the rock, which is intended to signify to all of you good Hebrew scholars exactly where Moses was when he encountered God in Exodus chapter 32, 33. God puts him in a cleft in the rock, covers him with his hand, passes by so that Moses can see where God was. That's the scenario. Elijah, you see, is having run from the sight of God's triumph, seeking a God in the way that Moses sought God. Seeking an encounter with God similar to Moses. So he finds himself on Moses' mountain, in Moses' cave, and then... God answers his prophet's prayer. Now, there's a little bit of snark in God's response. How many have a snarky God every once in a while? Just three or four? Okay, because look at what he says. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah. What are you? You're not Moses. Doing here. This is this is Moses' cave. What are you doing here? What are you doing? Here. Elijah. You with me? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord of God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Anybody get a little bit of entitlement coming through there? All right? This should not be happening to me. This should not be happening to such as me. If this is how you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few of them. Okay? Now, please notice how God responds. Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And you can feel the surge in Elijah's little soul, because this is the language that God used to Moses when he was about to pass by. So Elijah thinks, I'm going to get... The same encounter with the glory of God that Moses had. So cool. I knew I had it in me. Now, this is all inner dialogue for Elijah. It's not written in the text of Scripture at all. But everybody okay with how I'm playing with this? You're doing all right? All right. So, uh, God is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. but the Lord wasn't in the wind. Now why would you think he would have an expectation that the Lord would be in the wind? Why would God make the wind blow such that the mountain is being pulverized by this wind that blows? Why would God do that? Because God did that the last time Moses was on this mountain. This is the same word that is used to translate that trumpet sound, that sound of wind. It's the same word, by the way, that references what happened in the day of Pentecost in Acts Acts chapter 2. The wind is blowing ferociously. Elijah is getting geared up for a one-on-one. He has an expectation that God will be in the wind because God was in the wind last time. And what does he learn? God's not in the wind. Oh. Okay. Part two. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But God was not in the earthquake. Why would he expect him to be in the earthquake? Because the last time God met Moses on this mountain, guess what one of the signs of God's coming was? An earthquake. No. Just an earthquake not the presence of God. Okay, and then the cruelest blow of all, after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Do you ever feel you're being teased by God? Why, why fire? Well, you know why fire? Because the last time God met Moses on this mountain, guess what one of the manifestations of his presence was? Fire. The last time God met this lonely prophet on the mountain Carmel of 250, 260 miles north, guess how God showed up? Fire. What does Elijah want from God? What he has always had from God. He wants God to do it again, he wants an encore with a relentlessly, endlessly creative God. He wants God to do again what God has always done. And God is not in the fire. Fortunately, there is enough life in the soul of this prophet, having eaten the bread and drank, drunk the water, that this journey is not pointless. Look at what happens next. After the fire came a gentle whisper. The Hebrew here literally reads, the sound of the thin silence. And as soon as Elijah heard the silence, he pulled his cloak over his face, went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. God was present in the silence, not in the fire, not in the earthquake, not in the wind, in the silence. What is God doing? What he is doing is training his prophet into the new. Away from the spectacular, away from the signs of his presence to an intimacy that only silence and solitude can convey. If your or my understanding of God is anchored in what God has done again and I demand that he do it again, I ought not expect maturity as the outcome. Some of you started your career in Christ with answered prayers, people being healed, coming to faith, Miraculous kinds of things. And in the last few months or years, you have heard nothing. What is God doing? Has he abandoned you? No, he's inviting you into an intimate relationship that is not performance based. Is it because he doesn't love you? No, it's because he can trust you with silence. You will become aware, once you have tuned your heart to silence, to stillness, that it is God's favorite voice for those whom he loves. When Jude and I uh, were first dating, we used to go out for lunch, and or coffee or whatever, and we'd sit in a restaurant, and we'd look at the old people around us, those in their 30s and and, um, you know, they've been married for all of five or ten years, and you know what they were doing. They were sharing a meal together in silence. And we thought, those poor people. <sighs> that will never happen to us. And now if you go out for dinner with us, 40 years later, you will discover that we love silence. We love shared Silence. There's a conversation that takes place in the stillness that words get in the way of. How many know what I'm talking about? Why would we expect it to be different in our relationship with God? And why would we expect God, who created so much silence as the frame of meaning, not invite us into his heart. Here's what I mean. Um, a piano has 88 notes. A melody is comprised of one of them with the other 87 silent. Music is more silence than sound. Words coming out of a silence have weight and depth and richness that words that come out of a flurry don't have. Have you got a friend who you train yourself to listen to every 10th or 15th word? It's just this flood. How can people talk without breathing? What is it that gives words meaning? Have you been in a meeting where somebody has sat and listened? They're attentive. They're present. They haven't said a word for an hour. And everybody's starting to kind of look over at them. What are you even here for? And then at the end, they say one or two sentences that gathers the whole hour together and frames it with meaning. That is speaking out of a listening, a trained, a present silence. Words that come out of silence have depth-rich meaning that words that come out of noise don't. So my guess is for this congregation, at least for some of you, some of you uh, maybe not so much just right now, but for some of you, Jesus has been inviting you into stillness and you have been resisting it because you want, this, you want the fire, you want the earthquake, you want the wind. And he's saying, no, 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 come, come. can we just be together and watch, watch the fire? Can we be still so that you can know that I'm God? The more we are conformed, the more we become fragmented, the more we are shaped by the world and its expectations and demands on us. And by the world, I don't mean necessarily, although it includes the secular world, advertising and relationship. Because and every, everybody else will tell you how your dating life ought to be or how your marriage ought to be or how your career ought to go or how you should manage your money or your sexuality or your free time or your leisure time. And There's, there's an app for that. And the more you let those voices, loud and persistent, define your sense of self, the more conformed to them you are, whether it's a Christian voice or a non-Christian voice, whatever that means, the more you will become fragmented, disintegrated, defined by doing and needing performance and busyness in order to be reintegrated, to come back together, we need to come apart before we come apart. Where did we learn this? We learned this from Jesus, who had no problem whatsoever getting up a great while before it was yet day and going to a lonely place to pray. If Jesus needed to do that, guess who else needs to do that? It's hard work, isn't it? It's hard to be still. It's hard to be quiet. And especially in our culture, i got to be honest, solitude is probably going to be necessary for silence until you've learned how to be still inside. Having learned to quiet the external noise. Some of you were with me way back when we did soul care uh, at, at the coffee shop, Mackay, and um, started to exercise some disciplines of little silences. Not turning on the radio or the... Uh, or the the podcast when you get in the car. Some of you don't even, some of us don't even make a choice. The radio is always on. We walk in the house, the TV comes on. What would happen if we would start to inject little stillnesses, little manageable silences, little spaces for actual stillness? into our lives. My sense is that we would start to calm down. Why? Because your soul is such as responds to sound. If you want your soul to be still, begin by silencing some of the things to which it is responding externally. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. And that is how my soul is restored. Stillness. Now the truth, we're terrified of silence. We're afraid, not of what we might hear from God, although sometimes we are. Can I just set that aside for a sec? the first time you hear from God out of the silence, what you will hear him say is your name and that he loves you. That's what you'll hear. That's what he always does. It's either that or don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Okay? What we're really afraid of, though, I didn't know this, took me three and a half years of hard work to get to a place of silence for the first time because all of the noise that I had stuffed, that I had managed to ignore, all of the images, all of the words, a lot of the anger that I had stuffed down, I discovered that my fear of silence was the fear of that volcano of poison erupting. Here's the thing, it's still there, whether you acknowledge it or not. You want to get rid of it? There's only one way. Silence takes the cork off and lets flood out the images and the language and the words and the anger and the frustration. Took me three and a half years of flooding out before finally there was nothing left there to flood out. I get it. But having gone into silence one time, you will fight for the rest of your life to get back there and live from that center. Because you discover that silence is not empty. It's actually full and rich and thick. If you've ever gone into a recording studio that is soundproofed, you know how heavy silence actually feels even at the body level. So we're invited into this. Silence that's external and silence that is internal. I forgot when I started. How am I doing, Brooke? Am I doing okay? Okay. Well, you guys are just gonna be here till I'm done anyway, so. <laughs> um, I, I will say this. Those of you who are extroverts, the two-thirds of you, three-quarters of you that are extroverts will find the initial journey into silence much, much easier than those who are introverts. And the reason is extroverts re- take energy from the outside world. They, they, it's just, extroversion is about how you receive energy. So if you just create some space away from defining relationships and, 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 si- and noises, then almost cu- very, very quickly, once you get over the initial awkwardness of it, extroverts are able to become and, and move in silence. The problem with we who are introverts is that we receive energy from silence. We receive energy from being by ourselves. So, so I will carry on some of my most uh, meaningful conversations with nobody else in the room. It's just in my own head. How, how many know what I'm talking about? Right, so, so when I'm in a, a place of solitude, when I'm alone, Having stilled the external noise, it's like finally we can get down to business here. We can, and that that's that that takes a little while to uh, calm down. I have to have a um, a mantra. Psalm 23 is my mantra. I keep coming back to that and stilling and stilling. You no, know? we can think about um, gerbils later. We can think about the squirrels leaping in the tree later. We can think about how we're going to pay for retirement later. We can think about all of this. Because when you... All the trees and every forest and every, every country start leaping when you go into the stillness. By the way, that's not unique to you. That's just the way, the way, the way it is. So that silence then trains us in, in the silence of not speaking, of not having to have the last word of weighing our words, of thinking before we speak, of training us to hear, to listen. And in solitude, we learn how to be genuinely present where we are. One of the uh, writers on uh, 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 John Ortberg, writing on his friendship with Dallas Willard, who was one of my mentors in uh, my doctoral program, Um, talked about how when he was with Dallas, he had the sense that he was the most important person in the world and that there was nobody else that Dallas would rather spend time with. Training in solitude enables that kind of authentic presence. He talks about a time when sitting there in his living room, the phone starts to ring. He said, every other person I'm ever with, when that phone rings, starts to twitch. I gotta answer that. What if it's somebody important? What if it's something important? He said with Dallas, he didn't even blink. It's as if the phone wasn't ringing. Solitude trains you in that kind of a thick, real presence. Notice how this then supports community, right? So the practice, what do we do? Calm down, we learn to do nothing and to do it well and happily, we move away from fear, we become strong in the inner person, we begin to delight in our relationship with God. We then become useful to God and helpful to other people because when I am fully rested, when I've been trained in silence, when I've been trained in solitude, I have no interest or desire whatsoever to control or manipulate you. In fact, you probably like me have discovered as a, as a diagnostic, one of the ways to tell that I'm more and more out of control in here is by the ways that I try and control everything out here. People, situations, circumstances, and my anger surfaces when none of those other drivers on the 405 freeway are taking direction particularly well. So it is so hard. <laughs> but you know, you know what I'm talking about? My students in my classes or my, uh, my, my family, my kids, whatever it is, that signals the more I'm trying to control there, how out of control I am here. How do I intend to restore that sense of stillness? There's only one way that I know of. Solitude, being alone for the purpose of being with Jesus. Start with 15 or 20 minutes of mindfulness at the beginning of every day. Five minutes will save your life. And silence that trains us in God's favorite voice. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about The Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.